As I've shared many times, I spend probably too much time on the internet, and particularly on things like social media. Lately, I've been paying attention to Reddit, and if any of you have uh, made your way through social media, you know that Reddit is a place where there's all sorts of different communities that communicate about things both silly and serious. Uh, I warn you, don't look at the political Reddits because they will drive you crazy. I usually look at ones that are a little bit more funny. Well, I've uh, noticed that there's a, a Reddit that is on, um, it's called Petty Revenge. And I probably shouldn't have looked at it, but I was a little curious. And one of the things that I found there was some silly little uh, uh, ways that sometimes people can be petty towards each other. I uh, saw one that I really liked. It was a picture a woman posted of a note that somebody left on her car. And the note was actually a coloring page, like the sort of thing that you would have for three-year-olds. And on the coloring page, it says underneath, I know that lots of people have a hard time staying within the lines. Try practicing on this coloring sheet, and maybe you will learn to park between the lines. <laughs> Another one somebody posted was a picture of a note that a neighbor had tacked to their door. And the neighbor was the downstairs neighbor, I guess, and they said, I just wanted to let you know that while you were out last night, your pet elephants were playing bowling. So maybe uh, uh, tie them up before you leave next time. A not so subtle way of saying you were awfully loud last night instead of actually saying uh, what needs to happen. They sent that little note. The sad reality is, is that those are funny little things, but I stopped reading that Reddit because I found it was actually kind of depressing. A lot of times these little notes can be funny and they're put out in a sort of a jovial, joking spirit, but many times you look at these kinds of incidents and you think to yourself, this is actually sad because if the person just had a 10-minute conversation with them, they could be reconciled and instead they find that they're angry and hateful towards their neighbors for the rest of their life. It's a sad reality that often happens in life is that many times simple things divide people. And of course we know in the world that there are some things that are very deep indeed and divisions that last over centuries. I speak to you today about this because I believe that St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, where we're looking at chapter two, is a letter that directly addresses those who live with difficult circumstances, with people who are different than them, and people often who frankly hate their guts. Paul speaks to people who dislike each other, who have enmity towards each other, and he reveals to them that in the midst of that enmity that seems endless, there is hope because Christ has in fact put that enmity away and created peace and created unity where unity had seemed impossible before. So what do I mean by enmity and anger and hatred in people in the church that Paul is speaking to? Well, uh, as Reverend Alana spoke last week, we're not entirely sure who the letter to the Ephesians was written to. Many of the early, uh, earliest copies doesn't say to the Ephesians, so it could have been a circular letter or to others. But one thing we do know is that in the early church, they faced a lot of struggles. A lot of struggles because a very diverse crowd had begun gathering in the same places to worship the same Lord, but they came from very different places indeed. And for that reason, there were very serious tensions. If you read, for example, uh, even the Gospels, we look at how Jesus gathers disciples together. We find that sometimes when Jesus is at a person's house, for example, at the house of Simon the Pharisee, he has attracted a, a woman that we don't know much of, but a woman who has a bad reputation in town. And because of her love and her gratitude towards Jesus, she weeps and she uh, bathes Jesus' feet in the home of Simon the Pharisee. And a person who is there to invite Jesus to his home criticizes this woman. Why? Because they are of such different social classes and different ways of life that they cannot abide being in the same room to each other. 
Jesus gathers his disciples and he gathers a fairly uneducated uh, a Galilean fisherman. He gathers a tax collector named Matthew, and he gathers a, a zealot, a person who violently fights against the Roman government, all in one group of disciples. And I'm sure there were some uncomfortable discussions around the campfire between Simon the zealot and, and Matthew the tax collector who works on behalf of the Romans to shake down Jewish people and to get the money that the zealots want to oppose being taken. We also find examples there where Jesus is trying to do something good for a person, a, 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 a centurion, a Roman centurion that he knows has, has good reputation amongst his people, ask, come and, and heal my servant, and then he sends a person out to Jesus before he reaches the home and says, I'm not worthy to have you enter my roof, only say the word and my servant shall be healed. Jesus uh, is told not to come in because he knows that centurion Gentile, a non-Jewish person, knows that he doesn't want to put Jesus in a compromising position because people will complain, why is this Jewish person who claims to be the Messiah spending time in the house of a Gentile? It was a no-no. When Paul writes his letters, he often writes to people uh, recognizing that they come from very diverse backgrounds. When Paul famously writes in 1 Corinthians that there's neither Jew nor Greek nor rich nor poor nor male nor female, he is speaking to a situation where he knows that at any given church he visits or writes to, he will find a very motley crew indeed. He will find that some people who are slave owners will come to church and bring their slave with them and make the slave sit at the back while they sit at the front. He knows that there will be very rich people who, when they hold an event at their house or worship at their house, will hold a feast for their rich friends with uh, well-aged wines and with roasted meats and leave the poor uh, outside to gather what scraps are left. He knows very well that in a culture in which he operated, in which men were considered at a pedestal and women were considered not even persons, that he had male and female gathering in the church and there would be tensions. But where the greatest source of tension Paul usually faced, and this is something that we see throughout the early church in its first centuries, are the tensions between Jew and Gentile. Jewish people, like Paul, like Jesus, like his disciples, were attracted to Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, but it didn't take long before Gentiles started noticing the things that they were saying about the grace and about the love and about the, the acceptance and inclusion that this Savior was bringing. In the book of Acts, we find uh, that even the Samaritans are coming to believe, and Jesus tells us that Samaritans and Jews don't associate with each other. We find that the Ethiopian eunuch, a person who may be Jewish but is considered outside and an outsider, was brought in. We hear about Cornelius, the first Gentile who was baptized, and we hear of Paul's missionary journeys in which people from many different places come to join the church. And so they find that many times they fight and they argue. To understand a little bit about what Paul is getting at, to see that these kinds of differences were very serious indeed. They weren't just small things. This is what Paul writes to the people who are Gentiles, people who are not of Jewish origin, who have paganism in the background rather than worshiping God in the temple at Jerusalem. This is what he says, remember that at one time you Gentiles by birth called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands. Remember you were at that time without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of province, promise, having no hope without God in the world. Later on, he makes reference to the dividing wall, the hostility between us. 
We sadly know today that Gentile and Jewish people often have a very troubled history, and the church, unfortunately, and to the great tragedy, I'm sure, and heartbreaking of God, has often been at the forefront of anti-Jewish sentiment. But in the ancient world, it had already existed for hundreds of years. We know the story of a few hundred years before Jesus was born of how Antiochus Epiphanes, the, the leader over the Jewish nation at the time, was a Greek person who insisted that Jewish people stop what he considered terrible backward pro, um, practices. He uh, deposed the Jewish high priest and placed his own person there who uh, set up a temple with Zeus, the idol, in the middle of the temple. He caused pigs to be sacrificed on the altar that was something considered absolutely profane and terrible for Jewish people. Later on, although that person was deposed, we find when the Romans invade Pompey the Great, the person who eventually fought a great war with Julius Caesar, marches into the temple to the Holy of Holies where only the high priest can go, looks around and says, what a useless and stupid temple this is because there's nothing inside it. For many times, Jewish people would know that they couldn't be part of polite Gentile society because they wouldn't worship pagan idols. They couldn't go to the city feasts because these uh, were, were filled with non-kosher foods. And they knew very well how often Gentiles would tell them that they are worthless, stupid, with backward, um, backward practices. But of course, it ran both ways. We find oftentimes throughout Jewish literature talking about the uh, people who are Gentiles, non-Jewish, not calling them by their Greek or their Arabic or their other names, but simply saying, ugh, the uncircumcision, the ones who don't obey God's law. Often a term that was used was the dogs. These are people who are dogs and not really human beings enlightened like we are. When Paul writes to congregations, he finds that Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians bring so much baggage, it seems as if what uh, possibility of unity exists, in fact, has been taken away. That the unity Christ talks about, about how we are all in Christ one, seems probably like hollow words to many of them, because they look around and realize that people do not associate with each other. They hold on to grievances, and the deepest prejudices they have cannot be let go. So why is it that when Paul speaks in this letter, he doesn't speak with despair? He doesn't just say how terrible situations are and give them a tongue lashing and how they need to get their act together. Paul speaks with comforting words for one simple reason, because Christ, through his power and his grace, has the power and has in fact has done an act of reconciliation that human power itself could not. This is what he says. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments that he might create himself one humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, might reconcile both groups to God and one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. You know, we look at this and we think to ourselves perhaps the same thing that ancient people might have thought as well. Isn't it nice that Jesus makes us all gather together? We all sing kumbaya and pretend unity, but we also know as we look around at this world that there is not always unity. What a tragedy it is that there are so many different denominations in our world. I often wonder about the people who look at the church and say, well, aren't you all Christians? Why can't you gather in the same building? And I wonder whether I can have a good answer to them. We look around at the world and its many divisions and we say to ourselves, well, maybe that all sounds great in theory, but does it really work? 
troubles me as it troubles you. But as I was researching for this sermon, I came across a story that I hadn't heard before, and one that really rocked me in many ways, but in a very good way. I read about the life of a woman named Shirley Chisholm. Some of you may know her because she was a giant in the civil rights struggle. She died in 2005, but during the 1950s and 1960s, she was an African-American woman in the South who worked very hard to desegregate the United States and to work against racial hatred. She was the first African-American woman elected to Congress. She was also the first African-American woman to run for president. She ran for the Democratic primary in 1972, and although she didn't make it, she had a lasting impact. Even today, the vice president of uh, the United States, Kamala Harris, said, I stand, as so many of us do, on her shoulders, speaking of Shirley Chisholm. Here was a woman known for her advocacy for women and for African-Americans, a woman who fought tirelessly and had faced down the dogs, the fire hoses, and the hatred of American segregation by white supremacists. But here's where the story gets interesting. I'd heard some things about her and about her accomplishments, but the story I had not heard is this. Some of you may know that in the 1960s, the governor of Alabama was a man named George Wallace. In 1963, when he was elected, this is what he said in his inaugural address. Segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. He was responsible for setting dogs on African-American people who marched simply for their right to vote. He was responsible for excluding and hating and spreading bigotry and wickedness. But in 1972, when George Wallace was campaigning to become governor, someone shot him. He was shot several times and he ended up in hospital clinging to his life. He ended up being paralyzed, although he survived. Here's where the story gets interesting. In 1972, while George Wallace uh, languished in bed in the hospital, he got a visitor he didn't expect, Shirley Chisholm. Shirley Chisholm came, spoke with him. They were both Christians, although from a very different point of view. And she prayed with him, held his hand, George Wallace asked her, why would you do a thing like this? Shirley's response was, I don't want what happened to you to happen to anyone. Later on, George Wallace's daughter, Peggy Wallace Kennedy, described Chisholm's visit as altering her father's life. Shirley Chisholm had the courage to believe that even George Wallace could change, she said. Chisholm planted a seed of new beginnings in my father's heart. Wallace soon repented of his racism and he began to seek forgiveness from those he had harmed so terribly. In 1979, George Wallace arrived in his wheelchair at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. He confessed there to all the harm and the misery he had caused. His own pain, he said, helped him understand the suffering of others, and he begged forgiveness. And here's where it gets even more amazing. As he left the sanctuary, the congregation rose and sang Amazing Grace. You may think to yourself, well, here is a person who sniffed out the change of political winds and decided segregation was on the way out and I need to do more to attract more voters. But John Lewis, another great uh, uh, towering figure in the civil rights movement, a man who served US Congress for many years, who died recently, a person that Barack Obama and everyone down praised as a great example of civil rights struggle, a person who helped organize the March on Washington, who was there in the marches from Selma to Montgomery 
and had hoses turned on him and attacked by police. He was asked about this incident, and people wondered, was he sincere? And what did John Lewis say? I could tell he was a changed man, and I forgive him. In 1982, when George Wallace decided to run again for governor of Alabama, he won 90% of the African-American vote. The man who said segregation yesterday, segregation now, segregation forever, was not only a changed man, he was changed because the power and the grace of people who loved a man who absolutely did not deserve it. In 1973, not long after Shirley Chisholm's visit, she addressed the convention of the Religious Education Association, and Shirley Chisholm asked this important question. Are we ready to learn to deal with others as God has dealt with us? God gave us life at the risk of our rebellion and paid for reconciliation at the price of the cross. Shirley Chisholm's life and example, her faith and her actions, should cause us to ask the very same question. But to ask that question not with despair at the differences that divide us, but to ask that question with hope, knowing that what is humanly impossible is not impossible for our God. I look at that situation and I look around at the world in which there's so much division, so much hatred, and so much unwillingness, even for people who live next to each other to be reconciled, and I look at what Christ has done in situations that are so horrible I cannot even imagine them, and it gives us hope today to say, are we willing to make small sacrifices to actually be around people we do not like? And in fact, to take the step of simple actions like Shirley Chisholm did, an act of kindness to someone you know does not like you, but to do it because you know that through Christ and his grace, great things can happen. I don't know about you, but when I think about where my faith has been strengthened the most, it is not usually at times where everything is sunny and wonderful. In fact, those are times where I'm most in danger of forgetting God at all. The times where my faith has been strengthened are those times when, like I was reading that article about Shirley Chisholm, when a tingle goes down my spine. Not the icy tingle of fear, but instead the tingle of noticing I am in the presence of something supernatural and great. Something that C.S. Lewis says is the scent of a flower we have never seen. It is as if the kingdom of God has broken in and I know that I'm in the presence of something incredible. And it has happened in my life at times where I've been reconciled with someone I have not liked, times where I've sought forgiveness for times that I've done wrong and times when I have let go of grudges. And suddenly the ice that had encrusted my heart is melted away because the warm wind of the Holy Spirit comes and makes possible what seemed impossible. So where's our hope? As we ask that question, are we ready to learn to deal with others as God has dealt with us? My prayer is that we will say yes. That we will look on the grand history of Christ making things possible which seemed impossible and say to ourselves, with him we can do what seems impossible. That what Paul writes here about breaking down the dividing wall is not just some theory that we read about or some great act in the past, but instead something we embrace because we know that today Jesus will do the very same thing. If we step out in faith and say, I know I disagree with you, I know you're different from me, and I may even know you don't like me at all, but I will love you because through the power of Christ, what seems impossible now can be made possible. Let our hope be that as people look at this church of St. Paul's, 
And they look at this church and say, well, isn't that the church that has people of different backgrounds, people of different skin colors, people who are wealthy and people who are poor, people who are well-educated and people who are not well-educated? What a motley crew of people gather on the hill there in Canada. But you know what I find most amazing? They all seem to get along. People who disagree, people who are different, manage to love each other, even when we drive each other nuts. Our hope today, and I hope our prayer for every day, is that we live into what Jesus has done, breaking down the dividing wall and making peace where we had despaired of ever seeing it. Let us pray. <clears throat> Lord our God, we thank you for making possible what seems impossible. I thank you for the life of Shirley Chisholm, for the life of John Lewis, and even for a man who had done such evil, George Wallace, for changing his heart. I thank you for the changing the heart of St. Paul, who had breathed threats of violence and killed members of your church, sheep of your own flock, and using him to deliver so great and empowering a message. Lord, we cannot do this ourselves. You are the great shepherd, and we are your often troublesome sheep. Help us, O oh Lord, to love the members of your flock as ourselves, to step out in faith and love those who annoy us, who are different from us, and even those who do not like us very much. And help us day by day to pray for the reconciliation that your spirit can bring. For Christ on the cross, you reconciled humanity to, you, to our Father, but you also reconciled human to human. Through the power of your blood, let us be reconciled with all we disagree with, O oh Lord and bring near those who are far off, and help us, O oh Lord, to celebrate the great things you can do. We ask this in Christ's name.